This Future Construct podcast episode is supported by Applied Software. Applied Software is on a mission to transform industry by empowering their clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. So visit asti.com, it's A-S-T-I.com, and please let them know that we here at Future Construct and BIM Designs sent you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special series of the Future Construct podcast in partnership with Shadow Ventures. I am Amy Peck, your co-host, and I'd like to introduce my co-host, KP Reddy from Shadow Ventures. Hi, KP. Hey, Amy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So can you share with us why we're here and what we're doing? I have been briefed. I'm not asking for me. I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we've we've got these fantastic startups uh, in our incubator and our ecosystem that we think uh, are transforming construction and the built environment. And that would be a great way to kind of get the word out and also kind of help people understand the trends. And we've also asked our startups to bring uh, kind of a guest with them. And and so we're not just getting the startup's point of view, but also kind of macro industry points of view about what's going on. Excellent. And so our guest today is Jamie Fleming. And I'd love to just hear how you two got connected and then introduce Altura. Yeah. So Jamie and I met, I think, through... Mutual, you know, investors that the the industry is big, but the ecosystem is small. Um, So we got introduced and uh, myself and our CTO got pretty fascinated with the strategy around what Jamie was doing at Altura. Uh, As you know, VR, AR, it's it's not quote unquote new, but um, if you look at it in terms of the biggest opportunity in the industry, is that people can't actually read drawings. People can't actually, um, they don't actually understand what they're, they're building and what they're managing. And the largest purchase you will make sight unseen is a building. And so we think that they're, well, we got intrigued with uh, what Altura and Jamie is doing is this idea of um, the no code aspect of creating an AR VR experience. Yeah, that uh, thanks, KP and Amy. I was actually looking back after you asked uh, in our in our previous conversation, looking back at HubSpot. All roads do lead back to Sala Polos because Sala was the one. Uh, Sala is for, at Microsoft uh, works with Marcus, and Sala sits on our customer advisory board. And I, it was through Sala that we were introduced to KP and Shadow Ventures. So truly, truly, all all roads lead back to Sala. Oh, good. Um, we're, we're, yeah, we're we're very close with with Sala here, and she's been a <laughs> champion of Future Construct. <laughs> uh, so yeah, well, thanks for that intro, KP. Um, it, it's great to find, of course, like minded people who believe in the power of how these kind of three D models and this notion of metaverse can transform the built and unbuilt environment. And we have a strong thesis and belief that just as the over the last 20 years, the world has become more and more digitized. If you think, you know, put yourself even 15 years ago, could you have imagined that basically anything that you wanted to buy 
uh, in the world you could access digitally online and see an image of it. Everything is becoming digitized. And that same transformation is happening right now, particularly in the enterprise where people are, are um, we're able to leverage the 3D models of environments or equipment and allow enterprises to do work in or on those models um, as a spatial reality, instead of just as KP was was mentioning, instead of just trying to understand a three-dimensional object on a two-dimensional uh, surface, and God forbid that's paper, but also just on your screen, seeing uh, lines on a two-dimensional screen and trying to understand what you're looking at. So um, there's a there's a, just a tremendous opportunity there in, in allowing enterprise customers to figure out how they want to leverage the power of that 3D model uh, to do their work. So could we dial back a little bit to the, to the beginning of the story? Because you were telling us a little bit about your history and, and the other company that you that you founded and then you know founded Altor in 2019. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is in, I have an undergraduate degree in business, but then I went and got a master's in architecture for the University of Washington and worked as an architect for a number of years. And um, was fortunate to, in my personal journey to uh, be introduced to BIM right as the kind of the concept of BIM was just kind of emerging back in the early 2000s and really got into 3D modeling and started teaching 3D modeling at the University of Washington as an adjunct. And I realized there was an interesting opportunity to, to form a company that was just focused on these 3D models and how to leverage 3D models. Back then, the real power outside of just trying to figure out how to dimensionally codify a design um, was the visualization that you could produce out of this 3D model. So we initially were focused on helping architects and designers just understand visually what their designs were. So before they showed them to a, their client, they were like, oh, crap, is this really what, we, <laughs> what we're trying to sell them? Um, and ran that company for a number of years and literally built tens of thousands of 3D models of all different sorts of things, but, but primarily focused with architects and building developers. And um, then in, in the late 2000s, uh, we were actually approached by Microsoft, who had, uh, is kind of in our backyard and based in Seattle, Washington. Um, and they had identified my company as one of the top 3D modeling companies in, um, that they had encountered and said, hey, we've got a special device that we're working on putting together. And we, we are interested in having companies come in and build experiences on this device that turned out to be the HoloLens 1. Um, but we don't want you to just come in and build something in a vacuum, similar to how you guys are running this podcast. We actually want you to bring a customer with you that has a real need for this concept of mixed reality, which is Microsoft's term of kind of the metaverse. And so we brought Skanska in as a customer, and in that engagement, we built the, the world's first mixed reality leasing center for a, a tower in downtown Seattle called Two and You. It's located on Second University. And so the concept was brokers would put a HoloLens one on their potential uh, tenant, and they could take a virtual tour of the building um, and walk through it as if they were actually there, and they could spatially move through the space and check out uh, check out the building. And so that was really successful, and kind of that's where light bulbs started to spark for us of like, oh wow, there's a lot of 
interesting opportunity to leverage these 3D models for different uses. Yeah, so, you know, I, I definitely want to talk about the journey of raising capital because for founders, it's kind of nightmarish, let's be honest. And for investors listening to pitch after pitch after pitch, I work with startups on pitches. There are some god-awful pitches out there. <laughs> I don't know how everybody just manages to take a step forward and money gets exchanged and companies get built. Sometimes when you look at the process, but it happened for you and, and KP has invested in a lot of great companies. So he does invest and you've raised capital. Can you talk a little bit about that process and, and you know, what was that, that kind of synergistic moment? Because it's really important to mm -hmm. choose the right VC as well as raising the capital. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Well, you know, I believe all things in life, like you, you, everything requires a pinch of kind of fairy dust or, uh, you know, a pinch of good luck with every... Uh, every uh, successful endeavor, but I was really fortunate to um, meet my uh, current CTO who was uh, had been working at Microsoft developing the operating system for the HoloLens. Uh, his name is Bharat Aluwalia, and Bharat had a lot more experience than I did in working for um, SaaS companies and big enterprise companies. I'd been uh, running a services company, a successful services company, but very services oriented that has um, very little bearing on uh, a product or a SaaS company. So um, thankfully, Barat came with an entourage of connections that helped us kind of get that first angel investment, where really they were investing in the team. And frankly, they were investing in Barat <laughs> because they knew... <laughs> Um, they knew he was very technically oriented and had a lot of great experience and um, very, very smart individual. And so um, these angels were basically like, look, Barat's validating Jamie. Jamie's got some experience running a services business. Let's throw a little cash at this and see what happens. Like, you know, it would be a fun pet project. And thankfully, because we had worked so closely with Microsoft pretty early on, something that distinguished Altura from a lot of other startups out there is we had real customers that were using the product and giving us um, giving us feedback on our product. And you're going to hear from Marcus uh, later on your show, but you know we took a very specific philosophy at Altura of we're only going to build features that customers ask for. We're never going to go into our basement or our garage and say, wouldn't it be cool if we built this? Every People would love this. There were no shortage of those ideas, but we tried to be disciplined of saying, we're not going to build it unless someone's paying us good, hard cash to build that feature, because obviously that, then they can use it. And hopefully another customer will have a similar need and say, oh yeah, that's cool. We can use that. And I think that's one thing that helped us separate as we were pitching to VCs is we could tie back to customer stories of, hey, this is how our product is providing value for the customer because they've paid for us to build this and they're, and they're using it. Yeah, it seems fairly obvious to listen to your customer, but you know, we come across, and I'm sure KP can share some stories as well, companies where they've been doing exactly that. It's the smartest engineering minds are just ferreting away by themselves, building something that they think is amazing and have never spoken to a customer. So it does, as obvious as it seems, it's not the way everything happens. And it is hard when you're building a company to, to, to try and 
you know, assess what the full market landscape is unless you really have some key customers. And it sounds like Mar Microsoft was was very helpful in that in that journey. Absolutely. No, I think a lot of founders get stuck in this chicken and egg problem. Like, you know, they'll they'll you say, well, how can I sell something to the customer if I don't have an idea, you know, I don't have anything to sell. Like how, how, of course I've got to dream up and build something and then see if the customer wants it. But really it's in the beginning, I don't know if I should be saying this publicly or not. There is a little bit of, you, you know, you're selling a vision essentially to the customer and you're saying, Hey, you know, if we can deliver this for you, can you use this? Or, you know, tell us how you would use this. And then they're saying, yeah, I think we will, we'll buy that. And then you're like, okay, okay, let's go quick. We got to build this thing. Now we got to deliver this thing to the customer. So there is a little bit of, um, I don't know which one goes first, that, that maybe that's the chicken and then you're quickly building your egg. But, um, but yes, I think that is, a. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are genius founders out there, or maybe just incredibly lucky founders out there that do have an idea and then they introduce it to the market and it takes off like wildfire. But I think the safer route is to, is to focus on just building things that customers are asking for and willing to pay for. That people need. Yeah. And I think, I think the reality is, is that, you know, when people sit down and they're, and they're thinking about their product, you know, we all know, we all have friendlies who are high up at certain companies or who are potential customers. And, you know, I, I use the term friendlies, other people have different terminology, but people who are, who are close enough where you could say, look, we want to do this exactly to your point. And I think that's incredibly good advice. And so KP, I'm going to come to you and say, well, so what was your first impression when you met Jamie and team? Well, I, you know, I think one of the things that we struggle with a little bit is, um, and you were talking about, you know, pitches and all that. We're a little bit like anti-pitch. If you, if you, if your pitch is so polished, all we do is get suspicious. Um, and <laughs> so, really someone like me. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's, because there's so many founders that are like all sizzle, no steak, right? They're just, great at pitching they can get on a stage and those are the ones that we think are like shysters like they're they they must not have anything because they're working so hard to be so charismatic and so impressive um so we actually refrain from pitches um we just kind of say hey let's have a conversation let's talk about it right and i think what's unique about our industry is that it's very hard to like just show up out of college and build a startup in our industry. You, you have to have had the industry experience. You have to understand the industry nuances. And then there's a little bit of this industry is a little bit of like, well, who do you know game, right? Like, oh, do you know so-and-so over at Skanska? Oh, do you know so-and-so over at Genzel? Like there's that game it's almost impossible from someone outside the industry to play. So we, we want to understand kind of the foundational experience and knowledge of the team and where they've been. What's interesting is around this idea of like first customers, our thesis is that first customers are easy in a way, right? It takes some, you know, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what Jamie was talking about, but first customers are easy. Um, it's the, how do I, how did you get it? And where are you, how are you going to scale? So we, we, and I have this saying like, you know, as a founder, the first thing you do is you sell your friends and family. But that doesn't mean as much until you hire a stranger to sell strangers, because you're going to go from selling friends and family, and then you're going to go sell a stranger, 
And then you're going to hire a stranger to sell strangers. That's when scale and that's when magic happens. And we want to understand, like, what is it going to take to hire a stranger to go sell strangers? Because, I mean, I can sell you stuff, right? I can sell you some stuff. You're like, oh, sure, KP, I'll buy stuff from you. And, well, you know, it's like, whatever. That doesn't mean as much as someone cold calling you and selling you, right? And so that's one of the things. Good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. And so I think, you know, the thing that Jamie was talking about is like, you know, um, in the middle of like overhearing the Theranos uh, uh, verdicts and all of the fake it till you make it extremes. um, I do think the right customer or prospect, if you're building something that is not what is today, but what is the future, what is their choice? Their choice is to either bet on you as a resource to go figure it out or bet on an internal resource that maybe isn't quite as inventive. So they're saying, okay, we want to go execute on this grand vision. Should we partner with a startup that is inventive, that is risk averse, all those things, you know, there's more risk oriented, or am I going to pull in a product manager from my massive business um, that's probably working 38 hours a week and has six weeks of PTO and whatever, whatever, um, that's not that motivated and not that inventive. Am I going to bet on that resource? So I think the right customer understands like that they're betting on a vision and a future and they're okay with failure. Yeah. So both of you kind of mentioned this kind of magic fairy dust or this sort of combination you know, are, are there, and I know there's no formula, but you know, there, there is a visionary component to, to being a founder, to being in technology. I mean, it's just, you know, we have a certain company to thank for, you know, the metaverse now being on everybody's, you know, lips, but you know, the reality is this technology has been around for decades um, and it does take some vision to harness it. It takes even more vision to sell it. So what is that? Is there, is there a, a balance between sort of the practical and the visionary? I'm going to start with you, KP, that you look for and with you, Jamie, that's like just part of your sort of day to day. Yeah, I think the way we look at vision is what are the near term things you can execute on, you know, on, on your vision? And what, what is the bigger if everything goes well? What does it start to look like? And I think to your point, a lot of this technology has been around for a while. But, you know, if you look at our industry specifically, the cultural aspect, you know, putting taking a, a, a superintendent who's 70 years old and throwing a headset on them. Good luck with that. Right. Good luck with them you know, because they might feel like they look stupid or whatever. Right. But I think what you start to see is that, you know, the people that are now running the industry had an email address and a computer day one on the job. They didn't actually go through this. Oh, I have to go from writing things down to using a computer. You know, they, they started day one at their job with a computer, with an email address. So I think that the cultural shifting of like the why now is that people are willing to put something on their head. They're willing to carry an iPad around uh, I remember with the first version of the iPad, I was out with the CEO of a construction company and he had just bought it. And he's like, I'm returning it. It's just a very expensive piece of glass. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, well he's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's that, right? So I think that the, that that stuff is shifting, right? That is shifting in a, in a big way. And you know, and Jamie, I, you know, once you, once you get into the day to day of building a company, and I don't have to tell you this, um, sometimes it's it's hard to really sit back and kind of you know just give yourself the space to look at the the bigger picture. Um, so you know, what what's your kind of visionary, you know, your or your big vision, um, you know, for uh, Altura moving forward? Um, I think I think we certainly understand the day to day and the utility today is very clear. Yeah, I, I love that question. You know, we, it's a mix of kind of riffing on what KP is saying about, you know, what's in the here and now and what's the future. I think that um, we, we definitely are big believers in this concept of the metaverse, not in the kind of dark, shadowy, oh, shadowy, um, kind of harrowing vision of the metaverse that, um, but really, this concept that the digital world can provide us more and more value. And our belief is that, you know, most of the world, the enterprises out there rely on their physical products or uh, environments in order to be productive. Um, These are called the frontline or the first line workers, and they're more of them than information workers today. And so, you know, the ability to capture physicality and digitize it and make it spatial and then provide tools for different workflows, we feel like that is absolutely the inevitable trend. And so we're we're building for the inevitable, not for the hopeful. Um, and and we we believe that this these digital assets will um become as valuable or potentially even more valuable than physical assets in the future, because you can make them ubiquitous. You can run workloads on them. You can tease data out of them. You can do all these sorts of things that that the physical world is really is limiting in a lot of ways. So you see this emergence with NFTs and other things already just starting to scratch the surface of this. But, you know, imagine instead of just a gorilla with a mustache and a cigar, it's a it's a it's a digital representation, a digital equivalent of this your IP or your asset that you've got, and um, and so there's just a there is a huge we're at the tip. I don't even think we can see the tip of the mountains yet of what lies ahead of us in terms of the opportunity of of um, of of metaverse and enterprise. And just circling long-winded back, feel free to edit any of this out. But, um, you know, I think there's there are people today focused on, wouldn't it be awesome to have a Zoom meeting in the metaverse instead of like what we're doing right now? And I, I would say, maybe, I mean, that could be cool. Maybe that reduces fatigue. I don't know. I, it, it still is pretty compelling for me to see a video of you where I can see your facial expressions and, you know, we're not doing all these other gymnastics. But what I love about where we are as a company is we are solving problems that have a business value today. We're not, we're not focused on a necessarily a future vision of something that needs to happen you know, in order for it to provide value. And, and I'm not saying that that won't, just having a pure spatial meeting with avatars for a social event won't one day have value. It may. But, but what I love right now is being able to to show and track ROI and value for customers 
on their assets today, offloading workflows onto these digital assets. That's really exciting to me because there's just, again, it's just the tip of the iceberg of what you can do. Yeah. And if those virtual meetings happen, you'll be ready. You'll have the 3D assets exactly. to, import to, to be able to work with. All right. We are going to bring uh, Marcus Farquharon from Microsoft in just a moment. Uh, but before we do that, uh, Jamie, I have a question that I ask everyone on the show. And if you could project yourself 20, 25 years in the future, and you could bring any product or service with you that would just make you personally happy or just make your life better in some way, it does not have to be based in reality, it could be cloak of invisibility, whatever, what would it be and what would it do? Oh my goodness. I should have been listening to more of your podcast so I could prep for a question like this. Right out of left, right out of left field. Yeah, well, it probably have something to do. I'm a big coffee nut, espresso nut. So it's going to have something to do with a, a, a better espresso machine that maybe, um, I don't know, maybe you can, uh, boy, I'm going to just completely falter on this because I, I I already love my espresso setup. I, I, um, I can't but, but it's in your personal know. robot could be actually just making it for you. That's true. Although part of um, I, I'm all about the, uh, the, the labor. I enjoy the process of like making or doing. So that's kind of also kind of cathartic to do that. Maybe it's uh, incorporating kind of yoga into pulling espresso. Maybe there would be oh, a there you app go. for that where you could stretch as you're pulling your shot and in, uh, in part of your meditation. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that a lot. Yoga, yoga Chino. <laughs> you already, you've you already branded it. Right? <laughs> All right. So we have been talking a lot about Microsoft. Let's see if any of it's really true. We're going to bring on Marcus. Marcus, can you join us? <laughs> Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, so, um, Jamie, we're going to say goodbye to you. Okay. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. And, yeah. Thanks uh, for having me. Marcus, keep it clean. <laughs> we'll try. We'll try. Now okay. we're just going to see. We're going to do some fact checking now. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thanks, Thanks Jamie. Jamie. Take care. Bye. Well, welcome, Marcus. And uh, could you just give us a little bit more of an intro into your role at Microsoft? Yeah. So um, I'll hark back to a previous podcast, but uh, I am a close colleague of Sala Eckhart's at uh, the Microsoft Center of Innovation, but I am the experimentation lead. So my role is to uh, validate the return on investment of various innovative technologies and apply them to Microsoft's real estate portfolio. Um, so my program that I manage is rather broad, um, but one pillar of our program is in XR or mixed reality. And then how did, how did uh, you and Jamie meet? That's kind of a, I don't know, that was kind of an odd, odd introduction, <laughs> um, but uh, I am rather new to Microsoft. Uh, my background is very broad in terms of um, the digital building lifecycle as a concept. I've kind of worked in every sector now, and I've kind of gone the full gamut and ended up in the kind of owner operator segment. But um, my background is as a design engineer. I've worked for very large construction contractors and in the inspection maintenance space, uh, applying innovative technologies in all of those spaces, um, and now here as an owner operator. And um, coming on board uh, to Microsoft, you know, XR and MR is a frequent tool I've used in each of those various um, sectors of the digital building lifecycle. Um, so when I came on board, they were looking kind of for a partner in Microsoft to um, kind of further along Altura being used at Microsoft. 
And so with my name coming up, they kind of introduced me to Altura and said, you too like mixed reality, go apply it, please. <laughs> um, and so I came along, uh, that was about January, February, I believe of, of 2021 is when we got introduced um, kind of internally at Microsoft. And so we've taken what Altura has done um, at Microsoft previously and then developed it over this year. And, you know, it, it seems so obvious, but of course we are in the industry and I think we forget that we're kind of in a bubble relative to technology and what its capabilities are. But we, when you talk about kind of building lifecycle management, I mean, XR, MR, has significant impact in every stage of that life cycle. And what are some of the ways that you think, you know, in, in addition to Altura, that, you know, owner operators, and is it going to be on owner operators to really enact this change and to start leveraging the power of this technology at every stage? Because we're finding that they're typically kind of solving one problem with one technology, right? And not really thinking about how do we seamlessly take this technology and apply it across this life cycle? Yeah, that's a nuanced uh, question there. And um, I think it depends on the owner, but you are correct that a more kind of holistic um, overarching strategy. So we don't have this like fragmentation, you know, like this mixed reality tool out of my tool bag goes to this and this one goes to this and they're completely different. Um, depending because from an owner operator's perspective, we want that continuity through the process from a data loss standpoint, from a value loss standpoint. Um, so you are correct. But uh, I would just from my perspective and our perspective at the Center of Innovation, yes, we are kind of defining that strategy and what that kind of holistically looks like and how we don't have data loss from step to step, you know, from my design to construction all the way through. How do we maintain our 3D models and assets well enough that really any mixed reality app um, could be used to access that data. And do you feel, you know, when you, oh, sorry, go ahead, KP. I was going to say, how do, you know, I think it's always interesting because um, owners like Microsoft that have a lot of resources, a lot of experience are leveraging tools that a smaller owner would actually benefit from a lot that doesn't have all the resources and doesn't have, um, especially in this day and age, but it's just like a cultural thing. They, they don't know. And, and I think about the whole process of someone thinks about, you know, we all think in 3D and then we draw it in 2D to try to communicate a 3D idea. Um, it's like this cycling of kind of information from brain to paper, paper to the computer kind of thing. And, you know, what do you think it takes? Because you've had experience beyond Microsoft to get people to understand, I saw it in BIM, they're like, oh, we're too small to use BIM. I'm like, that's exactly why you should use it. How, what do you think that that click is gonna have to be for smaller owners and operators to realize this technology will act, it's actually more applicable to them than maybe a larger owner? Um, I kind of break that down into three points. The first is price point. I think that the price point, the starting, you're starting price point to get everyone, you know, headsets or to get everyone trained on BIM. That's a high initial cost. So um, educating companies on that initial cost does have future benefits. And that future benefit is the second point, moving quickly. So, right, these technologies really allow us to move more quickly and more effectively because our information is more accurate. And I think that um, kind of investment curve 
you know, mm-hmm. high initial costs and then benefits later on. That's difficult to communicate um, because it is a completely new alien concept to a lot of people. Um, so uh, basically the way that we pursue that internally is getting hands-on. I'm a very hands-on learner, getting people actually in the field, using these tools, getting engaged in the process and um, really touching and feeling the experience. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I think also just from a, a, a sales standpoint, um, sales isn't focused on smaller companies. I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, even 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 mid market to a degree, it's like if you're even Microsoft or you're a, a smaller company and you have limited sales resources, you're going to go after the Skanskas of this world and the Microsofts of this world and you know some of the some of the bigger companies. So I think it's also it, it, it seems that the process needs to be not not just about standards in the traditional sense, but sort of a standardization of process and workflow where it's sort of de rigueur to have a digital twin of your building. And I think we're moving towards that, um, but I, I don't think we're quite there yet. And I'd be curious to see what you think some of the steps are uh, you know, to help us get there where it just makes total sense that you would always have a digital twin of, of your, your building from an as-built perspective. So we are building those value use cases um, currently in terms of what are our key owner operator scenarios, you know, things like uh, better tracking our energy usage. How do we measure that in terms of dollars saved? per business group, per building. Um, That also kind of breaks down into decades. You know, is my building built in the 1980s or is it built in 2010? Um, Meaning how do you retroactively build your digital twin for older buildings and the new ones? So that is a very big subject, Um, but I will say that defining the, you know, in your total digital building life cycle, at the very end, you have what's known you know, as a digital twin, the thing that the owner operator can use for the lifetime, the life cycle of the building over 30, 40 years. What are the value proof points of that? Um, easy ones are energy, thermal, electric, facade, um, roof inspections, things like that are, are fairly easy to define, meaning I don't have to send a roof inspection crew on my roof anymore. You know, I can have sensors up there, vibration sensors on each chiller. And I can actually do um, projections, meaning I can uh, simulate the vibration frequency of that roof chiller and understand that once it gets shakier, a certain point of shakiness, it's going to break next year, right? So you can start to do that. And and that type of proactive simulation is really where digital twins have its power. Um, But defining each proof point is a big big venture. It was a big matrix conversation. Um, I think in terms of, um, we can talk specifically about mixed reality and digital twins, if that's where you're going with this. Well, yeah, I, I think that that is another, you know, essentially it gives you x-ray vision, right? I mean, we, we see the, the, the movies in the seventies where you put on the glasses and you could see through walls. Well, it's here. Mm-hmm. And, and that is uh, in terms of mixed reality for an owner operator. Um, you know, we're using either mobile devices or headsets, but, uh, that is a concept we're exploring, especially with all of our new building developments that we have. You know, we have a very big pipeline of new campuses that Microsoft is building. Um, once those are completed, we will have that um, rich BIM data set to be able to have that experience in mixed reality. I feel like we're so close. We're so close. <laughs> I think, I think it's going to take, take a while. No, I think we are. I mean, I, th- I think it's just interesting. You know, I, I get back to the whole the biggest purchase you make 
sight unseen with very little performance. I mean, if you went into a dealership and they say, well, we're going to sell you a car, can't tell you what it's going to look like, can't tell you what the maintenance costs are going to be. Can't drive it. <laughs> can't drive it, but give me your money, <laughs> right? And I, I think that's the gap when we talk about mixed reality of just the buyer and the users. I mean, uh, I used to do a lot of work in healthcare and you'd finish the building and then there'd be a remodel within a year because the doctors and the nurses and the practitioners weren't engaged as users of the asset. So they had to tweak it. And so there was like the first build and then there was the renovation a year later because they weren't involved in the process because they don't spend their time looking at drawings. They don't like, they don't know what to look at versus like throw this headset on and, you know, go walk through the new building and tell us what you like and what you don't like. Yeah. And that's a perfect segue to the relationship with Altura there, um, where um, I will specifically focus on Redmond East Campus because I am located in the Seattle area. And that's kind of our main test bed, especially for Altura. Um, communicating to our stakeholders and really getting a larger audience um, involved in the design and construction project uh, process that really traditionally haven't been included. But for that very reason, where we want to kind of onboard our stakeholders into our built environment before it's even physically real. Um, and we kind of break that down into four themes. So we're trying to communicate Microsoft's mission, which is um, every one of our buildings will be the most connected, accessible, sustainable, and protected um, assets. Um, and so that's kind of how we break down Altera's story and application and how our stakeholders use that. So communicating our maintenance costs beforehand so that they can kind of absorb that um, and think about it and give us that feedback. It sounds like you're you're actually kind of creating a lot of the business models yourself, and I th I think that that is another key, where especially now in this kind of period of transition, which you know could could take a, you know at least a decade really before we start to see you know every building have a digital twin before this technology becomes much more ubiquitous. Um, it, but do you, do you feel like just almost handing owner operators the business model and the tools that they need and, you know, Altura is a no code environment so that they don't have to worry about engineers. I mean, what are, what are, what are some of these like boxes that you're checking to, to really help propel the technology? You've spoken about a few. Yeah. Um, so the no code environment of Altura, as well as, um, integrations we're making with our other uh, business groups is, is a um, very powerful partnership in terms of making it the ease of accessibility, um, you know, of, of those digital twins easier. The business models, um, I think, depends. So uh, the stance of each owner operator, I think, will depend, um, you know, how many buildings they have, how involved they want to be. Uh, specifically what we're looking at in terms of strategy is, you know, the owner operator owning that data because we're the central hub. At the end of the day, we own the building, we should own the data. Um, where that's centrally housed, how we access that, how each business group access that central data model from a headset, you know, those are things we're trying to tweak out because every region's different, um, especially across country, if you uh, expand that, you know, argument, that macro. So, I don't have an easy answer for you for that, but we are exploring that and trying to like define that guideline um, in terms of how we want to receive them, how digital twins are formulated, kept, housed, maintained, and then how our business groups access them. 
for what value use cases. And that is a developing subject. Um, and we could dive into a specific example, but um, that's how we look at that. And I bet somewhere in that example is a little, a little uh, product called Azure, but it, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole today. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe. just maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, uh, well, so I'm, I'm also going to give you the question that I give to everybody else. Uh, but before I do, KP, do you have any, anything else for, uh, for Marcus? No, I think this was fantastic. I really, um, I, I really do think it's important. There's a shift where companies like Microsoft are really leading the charge, where as little as like five years ago, they were deferring to their architects and contractors and third-party managers and saying, hey, we don't do buildings, we do software. Don't go figure it out. And I think it's great that they're taking the time and energy to really own the process because owners write the check, but they don't care to own the process. And I think it's, it's it sets a good tone in terms of leadership to other companies when owners do care about the process and they, they're not afraid to dictate process, which has been yeah. in the past. There's a lot of fear for owners to dictate process. Yeah, it, it is a, it is a, a slight shift, um, but the value perceived, you know, in the digital building life cycle, you know, having the owner's input throughout that whole cycle, we believe that a lot of costs can be saved in terms of total life cycle costs and calculating those specifically, um, you know, per segment, you know, design, construction, <coughs> maintenance, and ownership um, is a large initiative of ours. And um, it is perceived that, you know, having owners kind of dictate that um, can be very valuable. Because um, at the end of the day, we're, we're the user. Um, so if we're not happy with it, uh, like what you just said, we have to retrofit a year later, which is a massive cost that we could have avoided. Yeah. All right. So we are going to take our little trip to the future now. Uh, so 20, 25 years. And if you could bring with you any product or service that would just make you personally happy or make your life better, again, it's not have to be based in reality. What would it be and what would it do? All right. So I live in the uh, Pacific Northwest and I'm very snow centric. Um, I used to be a uh, ski instructor and disability ski instructor. So skiing is my sport of choice. So with the uh, nine inches of snow that I have outside my house right now, um, I'll use that as my theme. Um, and um, I don't know if it'll be caught in the video, but uh, I definitely had to apply concealer this morning. Um, so on the bruises on my face, hence that sport. So in that regard, um, there's a really cool product that came out uh, previously that I don't think really took off, but uh, there's mixed reality, like snow sport goggles that I thought was very fascinating. Um, and that could be translated to cycling or mountain biking or really any sort of sport there. And what I would really like to see and use, um, and I think their LiDAR technology needs to increase far beyond what it is now, but I'd like to see a corollary between video games like for kids and simulating that video game on the actual mountain skiing. Um, there was a group that started doing this, but I don't think the technology was quite there yet, but I really like the idea of having, um, you know, like the Nintendo switch, you have accelerometers on your body and you're simulating the movements of that sport, having that experience, but then having the same experience in your living room, in real life. And this has corollaries to simulations and construction. Um, so that's kind of where the idea stems from. But in terms of personally, 
I'd like to see like a mixed reality sports goggle that is also tied into gaming systems, if that makes sense. Wow. Wow. Because skiing's not hard enough. You have to be playing a game. <laughs> you must yes. be a really, really good skier if you want to yes. be playing a game while you're skiing. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it was a nifty idea. Maybe I'll, 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 uh, let others be the judge of my ability. Um, but, um, no, this, uh, I forgot the company's name, but they had like a call and text feature and you could cast what you were seeing in a video call to someone else while you were moving. So you could like share, you know, Hey, I found this cool folder, you know, whatever it was, right. This cool scenery, you could share it live. Um, it was a, Interesting company. I forgot the name, but um, I, cool. I don't know if the like the active lidar that used to map the terrain to place the uh, 3D objects. I don't know if it was mature enough yet, but yeah. you know, I'd like to see that. Well, we ha- we will have at some point, you know, a true digital twin of the of the planet. You know, it's like everybody's working on having that, so we will know where the trees are. Hopefully, <laughs> and you know that well, the crackpot CEOs that are actually going to now take their board meetings you know, and, and project that into the board meeting while they're, so so I love it. I think that's a great idea. Because you could, you know, with, with the advances in 3d reality capture, um, you could right in your living room, in your video game environment, you could be skiing or cycling or mountain biking, the actual mountain um, that was scanned, you know, in that video game, but then have that same game physically there. Um, That's very cool. I like it. I like it. I'm going to, I'm going to actually build the insurance company for that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah give me a call very, later very busy. <laughs> yeah. awesome well it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today thank you so much for joining us and kp this was fun we should do more of these <laughs> we should that'd be a great idea <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you everyone yes all thank right. you thanks <laughs>